My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I'll be one of my friends, just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate, teach, put days like this into context. Call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. In retrospect, were we paying too much for everything? I mean, that's Wall Street's conclusion on a day where the averages got slammed again, but still rebounded from the lows. Dow finishing off 67 points, one point positive. The S&P declining 1.22%. The Nasdaq, forget about it, tumbling another 2.28%. But I'm not satisfied with that too expensive explanation. Too glib! Even as people right now are trying to dump Microsoft as if it's a bag of red-hot charcoals. So let me give you the autopsy of this decline over the last couple of months. Let's call it since November. So you understand, make it a little less emotional. For years, I've warned you that nothing is more dangerous to a bull market. Nothing than supply. A stock market's like any other market. If you get too much inventory, prices will plummet. Of course, even when you get too much merchandise, too many IPOs, too many specious SPAC deals, it's hard to turn off the spigot. Because there's so much money on the line for the bankers, for the venture capitalists, and, of course, for the promoters, the private equity people, all the rich people. Okay? Now, that money is all behind the scenes. I fortunately have some insight into how it works because I actually went through the process myself when I bought publicthestreet.com, an outfit that I started in 1995 and left last September after a decent 26-year run. First, you have an idea and you talk about how it can scale becoming the first mover in a disruptive category. So you go out west to a bunch of venture capitalists. They love you. They lap it up. They give you money, and that establishes your valuation. With the street, it was surreal. Suddenly, our enterprise was valued at $25 million. I had about 500 subscribers. Good lifetime valuation, I was told. Then a few months later, with some decent uptake of our products, the venture capitalists valued the company at $125 million after we'd already spent and lost the initial round of funding. Next thing you know, we had a few more meetings, more investors, some journalism, big shock, and now we got a $150 million valuation. $25 million to $150 million in almost no time flat. More and more money gets lost until you finally come public and the stock opens at a billion-dollar valuation. Because there are many people who like the product and buy the stock using market orders, the investment bankers keep back a lot to generate a boom, vicious pop. Needless to say, it should never have been worth that much. Fast forward a little bit, you have another losing quarter, except this time you're publicly... Uh, traded stock gets slugged, then another with another beatdown, and eventually you, you find your money, your company losing money with a stock in the single digits, trading slightly above cash, no institutional support whatsoever, and a lot of pride mixed with self-hatred. And hey, that's actually one of the better outcomes. I kept that company alive. There were more than 300 companies that came public during the dot-com era, and nearly every one of them had a similar trajectory, and almost none of them made it. Looking back, we got high, a high valuation on our own supply, thanks to the valuations that were created by the venture capitalists and the syndicate desks that engineered these IPOs so they could get a lot of money for the companies that backed us. I never spoke to anyone after the last round of pricing. I was always amazed that the VC guys kept paying up for the same merchandise. They almost did it to seem to make money for themselves, I thought. Keep raising the price and then bail on the silly public. It was beyond me. Could anyone really be that greedy? And we were losing a ton of money. But you know what? Those guys made Alec Bannett's. Well, guess what? Out of nowhere, 
We saw the same darn thing happen over the past couple of years. 400 IPOs last year alone, many of which actually look a lot like the street.com in the late 90s. Ridiculous venture capitalist valuations and sky-high stock prices right out of the gate. Wall Street promotion machine kicking in full gear, just like the street. Worse, we had something like 200 SPAC deals. They're still trying to pull them off. Where lots of private equity firms get involved, big shot guys who can really call, call a lot of tunes. And there was a ton of hype, including ridiculous projections that the SEC says probably shouldn't have happened. These companies have no one to support now, and you have no idea how they're really doing or who really profited in the SPAC pipeline. They're almost all disasters. The SEC needs to shut them down. They are outrageous, and I've decided that I have had enough. I can't take these losses anymore. Someone has to stand up to these big-time promoters and money men and women, and it might as well be me because I don't play for dinner. Now, I want to believe that many of last year's roughly 600 new listings are better than the 300 that we got in the DACA. But the recent action tells me they aren't. These broken IPOs have emptied the pockets of investors, and they're now tired of losing. Yet they're selling their winners to fund the overhyped losers rather than take a hit that's really already been taken for them. On top of that, you now have a host of companies that most people have no idea how to value. I mean, sure, there were lots of crummy enterprises that never should have gotten through the IPO shoot, but there were hundreds more that totally caught the fancy of Wall Street because they had tremendous revenue growth. They all seemed to have similar characteristics. They were cloud-native software providers that offer something as a service and secure data while helping customers in a secure way with a 360 approach to all things digital. We've had so many of these cloud deals that we simply stopped being able to value them on anything but press releases and sales forecasts for the out years, very much like the end of the dot-com era. The promoters tried to figure out new ways to pitch them, enterprise value to sales, Tesla similarity per share, per share those superlatives they ran out in November. And in the end, at the very top of that month, it was all about raising price target. That's a double-edged sword. And now cutting price target is the only mention you hear, at least for the ones that anyone still talks about. Given that many of these newly public stocks are bunched into stupid ETFs, their individual price target cuts can drag down a host of other names in a vicious cycle downward. These newly minted stocks and SPACs are now killing us. It's the excess supply that's dragging down the rest of the market. Sometimes I wish we had some sort of minor league stock market so we could like, kick them over to that. You know how, like, you know, in that, like soccer over in Europe, you know, they send them down to another league. We, we need that here. Finally, there's the ultimate indignation, the actual companies, the good ones. The real ones, the ones that are being tarred with the same broad brush as the bad ones, even as they deliver excellent results. Last night, IBM reported its best quarter in 11 years. Stock opened unchanged. Everyone's so negative. Then Wall Street comes with census. IBM roars. American Express reports the best quarter in the 37 years of CEO Steve Squeery's tenure there. And the robo headline said that he missed the revenues. Conference call explains that stock skyrockets. Johnson Johnson delivers a quarter that is incredible given COVID. And the robo headlines say it was bad. The stock's down big. And then it Versus jumps gigantically as people realize they're getting a bargain. Raytheon Technologies reports an eye popper, one that, like all the others, I love, but the media instantly dumped on it, thought I was wrong, spoke to Greg Hayes, the CEO, and bingo, way up. Texas Instruments crushes it tonight. Stock gets crushed itself. Why? Because idiots don't bother to listen. And then when they hear it, they gobble up every share. Okay, we got clunkers. J.P. Morgan laid an egg. I bet that Jamie Dimon's probably buying a million, million shares right now. Many, not me, many. Think that Microsoft's done. Stick a fork in a cloud business allegedly down thick. I'll wait and see. Yeah, General Electric was hard to understand, so it got sold. And Netflix made thousands of stocks look bad when it really should have only made Netflix look bad. But if you sit back and calculate the winners, that includes United Health, Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, Halliburton, Union Pacific, Lockheed Martin, along with today's class, then you recognize that the players on the scout team, the ones with the red pennies, the kids who got picked last and those who missed practice, they 
they are all there wrecking it for the rest of us. And there's far fewer of them in the majors. See, the bottom line, when you look at the majors, the real companies with real earnings that are reported so far, the winners actually outnumber the losers 13 to 4. And if I want to add Verizon, I can make it 14. Hey, why not throw in Travelers? That was great, but nobody cares about insurance. So now I got 15 to 4. Pretty amazing considering that I can't even find 15 good companies out of the whole 600-odd enterprises that came public last year, especially the farcical SPACs that need to be banned. They are laughing at you. You don't think they are, but they're laughing at you. They're so damn, they're so rich. And they're laughing. Looks like history really does repeat itself. First time it's dot-com tragedy that I got caught up in. Then it's cloud-based farce. Jonathan in New York. Jonathan. Oh, yeah, Jim. I got a good one for you today. Oh, a SPAC? I hope it's a SPAC. Amazon has an overweight buy rating and a price target of 4000 among other hedge funds. So do we hold or do we buy more dip to get rich? Which one? Amazon. Oh, Amazon. All right, look, Amazon's right now on a go-down mission. There's everyone's dumping on Amazon. People are saying they're selling Amazon. You know what? We've owned Amazon forever for the Chattel Trust, and we're not going to sell it down because we think it's one of the greatest companies ever. Sorry. I mean, look, Warren Buffett thinks Coca-Cola is one of the best. He owns everyone. says, wow, he's great. That stock isn't doing anything. At least Amazon's doing something. I refuse to capitulate to the crowd. I smell their grease paint, and I hear the roar, and I think they're wrong. Mike in Louisiana. Mike. Booyah, Jim. This Booyah. is Mike from Shreveport. Oh, man, I love Shreveport. Short. I love Shreveport. It's underrated. I got to tell you, I love it. What's going on? Man, I've been a fan of the show since May of 2005. Thank you. So anyway, I started a position in this stock six, uh, six weeks ago. Man, it's been dropping ever since and real hard. While I've been buying a little with each dip, I'm beginning to wonder, Jim, should I buy, sell, or hold NVIDIA? NVIDIA is a long-term situation. Historically, it looks expensive. When we see the numbers, it's not. Uh, what's the matter with NVIDIA? A lot of people right now, it, 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 it and a couple of its brethren got overextended at the very top. Uh, people got way too enthusiastic. But you know what? That enthusiasm is being wrenched out of the stock. We own it for the trust. We own a bunch of winners, some of which we trimmed and some of which we just say, you know what? We're going to be in there as long as the same management team is in there and that team continues to deliver fantastic product for the consumer and for the enterprise. And that's what NVIDIA is doing. Right. Nothing is more dangerous to a bull market than supply. And these newly minted stocks and SPACs are ruining it for the rest of your portfolio. When you look at the real companies that reported so far, I got about 15 winners and four losers. And I'm telling you something, I know how to count. Make money tonight. Verizon beat earnings expectations for the fourth quarter. I'm digging into the numbers with the CEO. Then it's Tale of Two Railroads, Union Pacific versus CSX. But which of the two could represent the best buy in this market? I'm tracking the two and giving you my take. Hey, by the way, Logitech, glimmer of green in today's session after reporting spectacular third quarter results last night. I'm getting the latest from the company's top brass. Remember, far more winners than losers among the real companies. But the rest, stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Is it finally the right time for growth buyers to consider Verizon? 
For years, Wall Street regarded this telecom giant as kind of a bond equivalent. Good for its bountiful 4.8% yield, nice and safe, but without much in the way of upside. But in this new, more difficult market, where investors appreciate value, dividends, and certainly Verizon, well, let me tell you something, looks mighty attractive especially with its stock selling for less than 10 times earnings and a very good quarter. Yep, this morning the company reported a solid set of numbers, modest top and bottom line beat, and a better-than-expected full-year earnings forecast. So could this be the year when this stock morphs from being a value to a growth stock? Let's check in with Hans Vesper. He's the chairman and CEO of Verizon to get a better read on the quarter and his outlook for the future. Mr. Vesper, welcome back to Mad Money. Hey, Jim, how are you doing? I hope you're okay. I'm doing okay. Hope the same for you, Hans. I like this quarter. Let me tell you why. There's so many things in here that read like the growth stock that I've been waiting for. A lot of stuff that hadn't been working, gone. A lot of big spend behind you. Are you uh, ready to make it for a multi-year move where we expect nice growth, not just dividends? Yeah, absolutely. We have been working three full years to get where we are today. I mean, everything from the network build we have done and the spectrum we bought, the divestment of Verizon Media Group, the acquisition of TrackPhone, which is 20 million prepaid subscribers. Uh, we are setting up ourselves right now for 2022 when we have several different vectors we can grow, all the way from national broadband to our 5D mobility, mobile edge compute, and of course, also together with TrackPhone in the value segment. We have never had so many vectors to be able to grow from, and that's what we have done. So 21 was the most transformative year for Verizon, at least as long as I can remember. I haven't been there for a long time. Look, I felt that way. I said, geez, maybe maybe my trust has to be in this. This is the new (laughs) Verizon. Now, let's get one thing on the table immediately. People were saying, when is this, uh, the airline situation we resolved? Well, you took care of that too, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. No, no. Uh, we, sneak, we, we launched, we have now more than 95 million uh, pops covered with, the, with our C-band, and that's historical quickly. In less than a, a year, we had that up. And, uh, and of course, we have some sites that are not powered up yet, and we're working through that with the airline industry and FAA, and, and, and that's going to be sold. I feel good about that right now. Everybody's working through it, and uh, we're up running uh, with the network, so it, it's just an amazing network we have right now. I've been saying over and over again, when is Hans Vesper going to come on Mad Money and say, you know what, the end of the major capital spend cycle is upon us. Is it possible that we can say that as of today? I can say the following. First of all, all macros is going our way, meaning uh, work from home, broadband, wireless, everything that is needed in today's digital society, Verizon have in the portfolio. And of course, also mobile edge compute, computing at the edge of the network together with Amazon, Google and Microsoft. So we have everything that is needed for a digital society. Secondly, we are coming out now from a phase where we invested a lot in CAPEX. And this year, our business as usual CAPEX is coming down, And we have said it's going to come out, come down over the next years to come as well. So we, we feel that we really are now leveraging the model that we've built the last couple of years. So now we're excited at Verizon. Our customers should be excited for the products we're coming out with. All right, now, it's still a competitive market. I have my Verizon, you know, I've been a Verizon customer pretty much all my life. And my family is. And I got the Apple 13. Yes, I know. But what I confused about is I'm watching the football games this week when like 50 million other people. And there's this T-Mobile. And it's like they want to give me like a thousand. I mean, they, they want to give me more money than DraftKings and Caesars and everybody else combined. I mean, how do you compete against uh, a $1,000 giveaway? 
No, I think what we have, we are very disciplined, financially disciplined in our business. Uh, we, you saw in our last quarter, we continue to add, we added over 500,000 new subscribers. But more important, we, we brought in high quality subscribers on our, on our postpaid. Because ultimately, for me, it's to grow our top line and grow our bottom line and see that we take the right type of customers that want the value that we're giving. So that we're going to continue to focus on. And, and it's working. I mean, our, our strategy is working. We just came out with new what we call mix and match where we give, give our customers even more optionality or bring in different type of models and just know that 70% of our customers are on unlimited we still have a third right. on on metered plan that we're moving up and then in the unlimited space we only have roughly one third on unlimited premium so our job is just to see that our customer understand our value proposition moving upwards and then we work with all the content guys all the way from the Disney Plus Discovery Plus the, the gaming companies in order to have a unique and exclusive offering from that so our customers continue to stay low, loyal to us with extremely low share on at the moment. Okay, two things that I had not talked about with you. One, these Fios numbers I thought were a nice pickup. Second, we have, have not talked about this acquisition of TrackPhone, which I initially thought was not no. material and I now realize is quite material. Both of these are drivers going forward, correct? Absolutely. Sometimes we don't talk enough about Fios. A, a, a record year for Fios 2021. Uh, there was the best year since 2014 bringing in customers on Fios. We build more uh, open for sales on Fios than we have ever done before. And we do it because our customers love the service and we will continue to expand. I mean, it's a big business with very good margins right now. So we will continue to focus on Fios and see that our customers get that. At the same time, don't forget that we are now also going nationwide wide with broadband uh, and outside the, 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 the Fios footprint, we're doing fixed wireless access with a really good also growth. We grew four, over 40% in the fourth quarter compared to the third quarter when it comes to new subscribers on fixed wireless access. So definitely an important piece of, of the valuation of, of, of Verizon stock that we have a very, very strong fiber Fios. All right. Secondly, just, as you said, just so uh, everybody knows, yeah, I've been recommending sorry. your stock since the show began, now 17 years, but it was principally over the dividend because I I want people to have income. We have a lot of people who want income. I see the dividend boost, and that will continue even if you are become a growth company. Am I correct? Absolutely. Well, we, for 15 years, we have increased our, our dividend. Uh, and uh, my job together with my CFO is constantly to put our board in a position to first invest in our business, which we're, which we're doing, of course, and secondly, see that they are in a position to inc continue to increase our dividend. So that we have done. And after that, our third capital allocation principle is to pay down our debt, which we also right. are doing as we took on some new debt during the C-Ban au auction that we had in 21. Yeah, that debt paid down was very, very good. Hans Vestberg, Chairman CEO of Verizon, Excellent job. This is it. I really feel it. I've been telling everybody today. It's different. And I knew you'd pull it off, Hans. Know you long enough. You weren't going to yes, stop until you did. Great different. to see you, sir. Thank you. Everybody's back here for the break. Thank you, Jim. Coming up, which of these two rail stocks can keep your portfolio on track? Kramer takes a whistle-stop tour of two railroads headed in different directions. Next. Board. 
don't let this relentless decline lead you astray. I know it's doing it to many, many people. It seems like the carnage never stops, but we're learning something this earnings season. We're learning that this remains a stock picker's market, not a SPAC picker's market. That's impossible. But a stock picker's market, the kind of market where your ability to pick between winners and multiple losers in the same industry has a major impact on your portfolio's performance, which, by the way, is why the advanced decline line is so horrendous. Worse by the... Worse in 15 years. Right now, we're in the middle of earnings season, as you know, and earnings season is the crucible that separates the gold from the dross. With that in mind, tonight, I want to tell you a tale of two railroads, because that makes things easy when you, you all, we all know railroads, right? It's not like we have to think about software as a service to help the dental industry. I'm talking about Union Pacific and CSX, both of which reported last Thursday. When Union Pacific announced its numbers in the morning, the stock rallied 1% that day after tacking on another 1.8% on Friday. Very impressive when you remember that the broader market was getting bent, spindled, mutilated at the same time. CSX, on the other hand, disappointed. And its stock slipped 3.2% on Friday. So how is it that one railroad's in great shape while the other one is struggling? I'm in the same business. What separates a best-of-breed outfit like Union Pacific from a second stringer? like CSX. All right, before we get into some specifics, let me set the stage in some context for you on the railroad industry itself. See, the last five years have been a golden age for the rails. CSX has given you 126% return, including dividends, while Union Pacific has given you 146% return, trouncing both the S&P 500 and the Dow Jones Transportation Index, which only had a less than 70% return over the same period. And this golden age was actually ushered in by none other than CSX under the leadership of its late great CEO, Hunter Harrison. When Harrison took over in March of 2017, he brought in a new strategy called Precision Scheduled Railroading, basically meaning that the rails come on time. In a nutshell, this is a way to manage a railroad more efficiently. You run fewer trains, but each train has more cars and travels faster with fewer stops. That means less idle time for your locomotives. It means a a much better customer experience. Tragically, Harrison died eight months after he took over, but CSX continued to implement a strategy, and over time, the rest of the industry copied it. Union Pacific was the first imitator. That was the key story here until the pandemic came along and briefly derailed the entire industry. And, of course, the economy itself. However, as business started bouncing back, the railroads, they roared. They ended up having a solid year in 2020, and it's been a great one. We just finished in 2021. Especially with the supply chain crisis, they've really been able to clean up by charging more for their services. Uh, Remember, there's a trucker shortage. These guys compete directly. Of course, like pretty much everything else, both CSX and Union Pacific have pulled back in the last few weeks, so there's opportunity here. The setup going into last week's earnings report where Union Pacific shot the lights out and CSX disappointed, what happened? What separated a winner from a loser? Okay, let's start with Union Pacific. It's a charitable trust name because it reported first. While their business volumes were actually down 4% year-over-year, kind of like, you know, Microsoft, oh, sell that, sell that, sell that. Operating revenue grew by 12%, coming in better than expected, thanks to higher fuel surcharges, a positive business mix, and better pricing. Union Pacific is having an issue with rising costs, like nearly everybody else in America, but their earnings per share still came in better than expected, as they were able to pass many of those costs on to their customers' strong demand. On average, the company's pricing was up 15% across the entire business. Nice business, especially in coal and renewables and intermodal, which are those big shipping containers that can seamlessly go from a container ship to a train to a truck. At the same time, some of Union Pacific's precision railroading gains have actually been rolled back. 
The freight car velocity was down 12%. The locomotive productivity was down 9%. They're just not operating as efficiently as they used to. Management says that's COVID-related. Workers missing time because they got sick or had to quarantine. I buy into that. People who took time off to get vaccinated, that happened. CEO Lance Fritz said they were caught off guard by the third and fourth waves of the virus, as well as the federal vaccine mandate that has since been rolled back by the Supreme Court. All these problems are temporary, but it did sidetrack them. Still, even though the quarter wasn't perfect, management's guidance it was unbelievable. And as we teach people in the investing club, that's what really matters. They're forecasting strong volume growth, pricing gains that should outpace inflation and better efficiency. Put it all together and Union Pacific should be able to throw off a ton of cash. Management promises to spend a lot of that money paying dividends and buying back stock, which is exactly what Wall Street likes to hear in an environment like this one. In response, the stock jumped and while it's given back some of those gains in the last couple of days, it's still only down about 12 bucks from its recent highs. How about CSX? When you look at the headline numbers, you might think this quarter wasn't much different from Union Pacific. CSX had excellent 21% revenue growth, slightly shrinking volumes made up uh, uh, for by a massive increase by pr- in pricing, 24%. However, they had some efficiency issues, so the earnings only came in a tiny bit better than expected. But there were two major differences. CSX took a bigger hit in terms of its efficiency ratio, cost divided by revenue, the most important metric in the railroad business. And more important, management's guidance was vague. While Union Pacific gave you specific numbers for 2022 that were quite bullish, CXS was a lot more cagey with its outlook. More qualitative language, uh, fewer actual numbers. That, By the way, that was the criticism of General Electric today, which got hurt. You know that. Uh, it's, it's CSX didn't give you something you could hang in your hat, your hat on, which is why the stock got hammered on Friday down 3.2%. You needed something firm. Why was Union Pacific able to give us a clearer forecast? I think a lot of it comes down to geography. Union Pacific, as the name implies, is a West Coast railroad. CSX is an East Coast railroad. The West Coast has its problems, short port backlogs at Long Beach, Northern California, wildfires, forcing them to reroute their trains, an epidemic of train robberies in Los Angeles, well covered by our team. But for all the headaches, Trans-Pacific trade is remarkably strong business, best in the world. It's business that belongs to Union Pacific and will get better, not worse over time. As port owners figure out the snafus and, more importantly, how to placate the unions, who really do run the place, although you don't hear that enough in the mainstream media. Meanwhile, CSX is an East Coast railroad that's less plugged into international trade, far more dependent on coal. Because the East Coast has more of a high-density highway system, they've got more competition from truckers. Many East Coast ports can't even accommodate the largest tankers, although some cities are trying to change that. Good luck. As for coal, while that business was on fire last year, it'll probably be strong again in 2022. It's not seen as a long-term growth market, and we know coal pricing can be incredibly volatile, which is one reason CSX has less visibility, hence why they're more vague. One last point. I think the market's more forgiving at Union Pacific because Union Pacific is more generous to its shareholders with a 1.9% dividend compared to 1.1% for CSX. At the same time, both companies have a long track record of big buybacks. But CSX was more noncommittal about the state of the repurchase program in 2022, in part because they needed to spend a fortune to replace 500 miles of track this year and integrate a sizable acquisition. The bottom line, don't let the roller coaster action distract you. It is a stock picker's market. So when it comes to a very simple comparison straight up of the railroads, you need to stick, as we say in the club, with the best of breed. And the best breed happens to be Union Pacific. Let's go to Tom in Connecticut. Tom. Booyah, Jim. Tom Booyah. from Connecticut here. Good to I have am you. a founding member of the Investors Club. And yes. I very much enjoy the morning meetings with you and Jeff. 
Good Thank you. At 1020, guys, people, please listen. There are thousands of people who are waking up to this and thinking it's just a lot. It's great. I really thank you, Tom, for mentioning them. It's very important to me. What's up? Uh, I have coffee with you guys every morning. Really thank enjoying you. it. Thank All you. right, brother, down to business. I'd like to talk to you about the commercial aviation business, specifically JetBlue, J-B-L-U. I bought into them when they were around the $17, $18 range. Uh, as I'm sure you're aware, they're under 14 today. Uh, JetBlue's in a competitive market. They got breeze coming in, flying around the north and southeast. Uh, when they're upgrading their interiors, they're actually throwing a few more seats in the aircraft, trying to keep it roomy, but they're upping the available seat miles. My question to you is, do we double down and buy more during this dip, or do we keep our trade tables up and go for the ride in the turbulence? Let's just keep the trade tables up right now. Uh, they're losing too much money. I do believe that they are an excellent uh, excellent airline. But the problem is the airline business, as you know, because you remember the club, very, very difficult to make money. And after a halcyon period where it was great, it's no longer driven. Okay, guys, in this stock picker's market, not SPAC picker, leave me alone, stick with the best of breed. And in the case of the rails, that means Kramer Fave Union Pacific. Much more mad money ahead, including my exclusive with Logitech. Has the home office build out made its way to the corporate office? I'm learning what was behind the company's spashing quarter last night. Then I always want to know what millennials and Gen Z are watching because they represent the future. But when it comes to investing, there's one thing that many in this cohort do that is a hindrance to their financial freedom, and I'm going to reveal it. Of course, all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Does good news still matter? And the answer is yes. And we got that answer from Logitech. The maker of personal electronics and computer accessories put an excellent quarter in the middle of the night and actually got credit for it. Logitech was one of the great success stories of the COVID era as people invested heavily in building out their home offices. But around the time people started getting vaccinated last year, the stock peaked. It's been rolling downhill ever since. Logitech got dumped in, well, it's, you know, it became another Zoom or another Peloton. You know, these pandemic winners that are weaker post-pandemic future. I think that narrative is wrong. Logitech, the business, kept putting up strong growth numbers. Last night, they turned in a fabulous holiday quarter, a true beat and raise set of numbers that sent the stock soaring more than 4% today. This is a company with real products, real earnings, and a relatively cheap stock that trades at 18 times earnings. So could it be ready to make its big comeback? Let's check in and take a close look with Bracken Darrell, the president and CEO of Logitech International, to learn more about the quarter and what comes next. Mr. Dow, welcome back to Mad Money. Hey, it's so great to be here, Jim. Thanks for having me. I got to tell you, Bracken, when I look at the new products and I look about video everywhere and how that became something that we first did very jerry-built, but now we realize has to be high quality, what I think of is Logitech. You just kept moving the ball. Well, we're so excited about every every area of our business, including that concept of video everywhere. And, you know, last year during the pandemic, we, we couldn't get enough of our video products, especially our, our webcams. And so we lost a lot of low end share and now we're gaining it back. And, uh, and we're, you know, we actually in units, we sold equal to a year ago, even in the webcam. Now, I think also uh, we now realize that gaming is not done. Of course, Microsoft certainly realizes that with Activision Blizzard, three billion gamers. It's very difficult to win in a competitive situation, I believe, without Logitech. Well, we, we, we love the competitive gamer, and we've been focused there for years and years, and we, we are winning there. We gained share again this quarter. We've gained share for many quarters in a row. But we also love the social gamer, 
you know, the, the, the gaming, you know, the social gamer comes to PC like they used to go to the playground, you know? And so it's, uh, it's become a phenomenon that's way bigger than just a hardcore gamer. Well, I mean, I think you need to explain to people, like, for instance, there's something if you were a gamer, you'd realize that the, the G435 gaming headset does make a difference. For most people, it's like, well, a headset's a headset. That's not the case. No, it's not. You know, and, and, you know, if you're wearing your headset for hours at a time, like a lot of these gamers are, you just don't want that much weight on your head. So these are ultra light headsets that really feel good on, look good on, and, and the sound is great. And the audio quality, the, the, the speaking audio quality both ways is fantastic. But it's more than just headsets. You know, it, it, it really the difference between winning and losing a lot of these games really can be, you know, how, how the lag rate of your mouse even. And so we've got wireless mice that have a lag rate that's equal to or better than the wired mice out there. So it's, it is a technology game when it comes to a competitive gamer. Well, speaking of technology, I'm watching a commercial this week in football. There's a kid riding around on his bike. And he, I, don't, I said, what's that guy doing? She goes, don't you understand? He's making a TikTok video, idiot. I mean, when you make TikTok videos, a great way to do it is with Logitech. Yeah, you know, in fact, you know, it's funny you said that. I'm literally sitting next to our new Mevo cameras. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm being a shill here, but you know, there's so many different ways to make a great uh, video, and more and more, you know, you want to have great mic quality, you want to have great video quality. You also want to use the the software, the software and service out there. You are in Streamlabs, so we're really, we're really set up to to serve the the TikToker, the creator, the streamer. We've got a whole suite of products. We're adding them all the time. In fact. I'm using one of these lights right now. I don't know if you've seen Elytra Glow lights, but they're super. I mean, they, you can see the lighting quality I've got is really, really good. And it's it's this light. It's, we get the highest pre-orders we've ever had for a product. I'll say it here, but I've never said it out, out any, in public before. We've got, I think, 8,000 pre-orders for this product. And that's extraordinary for us. How do you get, how do people know? I mean, I, I know you're advertising more. Uh, now, I'm not clued into that world as much as I should. So I need to know how you got that kind of pre-order. Well, we, this one, honestly, not we, we simply put the news out through a press release and through our various social media channels. And immediately there's such an interest in you know making sure you look as good as you can on camera because you're on so much that people came to us. This one, we really didn't pump out the, the, anything except letting the news get out the, the natural way. Now, I want to go back to video anywhere. It is very interesting. Uh, Zoom peaked a long time ago. And actually, Zoom stock goes down quite a bit, even though it's got a great balance sheet and very good management. Yours is now uh, embarking in a different direction is that because once you have zoom it doesn't matter whereas you need zoom in every room so you need logitech you know i think i think what's happening here is first of all you need a platform for for video collaboration that's what zoom provides and they do a great job but so is microsoft and, and google so you've got you've got first your platform then you need to enable yourself and so many people don't have great video quality yet so that's where the webcam comes in we've got an opportunity we've got 90% of the world doesn't have a webcam yet. It would dramatically improve the way they look on camera. And then the next step you got is conference rooms. And you know, only about 10%, 10 or 11% of all the rooms in the world are video enabled so far. And that's partly because there's this big freeze of the pandemic that, that IT departments and CHROs aren't really kind of moving yet. It's just starting. I mean, we grew double digits in our conference room cameras now. So that's ahead of us. So we just got a lot of growth ahead in our, in our video business. Well, one look at our network where we've tried to do everything the way you should do in terms of healthcare. We have uh, people on Zoom. We have people who are on Zoom and it looks like the first day of the pandemic. Why don't they get it that they can do satellite like quality with Logitech? Not expensive. Why do they have to look like the day Zoom was invented? 
Well, I think they're going to get it. They're, they're, and uh, we just have to keep getting the word out. The onus is on us. But uh, yeah, everybody should look like they want to on camera. And there's no reason not to. I mean, for between you know $39 to $99, if you want to buy one of these lights, it's $59. I mean, this, these are really low-cost products for what you're doing all day is, is transporting yourself to somebody else's desk. Uh, one, one last question. You did indicate that you had some supply issues j- just now, but the fact is you sourced so many different places. I was quite impressed by this quarter. I didn't see any supply issues. Am I correct? You know, we could have done even better, Jim. You know, we, we, we lost uh, several points of, of growth because we couldn't get supply in everything we wanted, but we still had a, a terrific quarter, as you said. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, this was a great number when it came out. It's like 901. I said, oh, please be good. Please be good. I know Bracken's coming up. Well, it was better than good. Bracken Dale, CEO of Logitech. Great to see you, sir. Thank you. It's great to see you, Jim. Thank, Thank you. you. Everybody's back after the break. Just chill out. Is this Chill Master Jay? The chill man is in the house. He's happy. The lightning round is coming up when Mad Money returns. It is time! It's time for the lightning round! And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Steve Dad, turn the lightning John in New York. John! Yes, hi, Jim. Thanks for taking my call, and thank you for being a great teacher. Booyah! Oh, thank you, man. That's what I want to be. I just want to teach. Sometimes I get a little emotional when I see our people losing fortunes. How can I help? Okay, I've been following a biopharmaceutical software company, Schrodinger, S-D-G-R. They recently reported approval of NASDAQ listing rule inducement grants. How does that affect the company, and what do you think of this company, and possibly would now be a good time to buy? Well, I don't know. It seems low enough. I know Bill Melinda Gates Foundation, but the problem is uh, Kathy Widow's uh, art. And uh, that's... You know, well, when things are good, that's fantastic. When things are bad, it's real bad. So right now, maybe go, go lightly. Take a small position if you want to. Let's go to Trevor in Colorado. Trevor. Great dog. How's it going? Doing well. How about you? I'm doing well. I wanted to ask you about digital turbines, figure symbol apps. You know, it, it, look, it's another one of these creative video situations. I've got like 70 of them. And at least it makes money. But there's just too many of them. This is my big theme that I've had to say since November and gotten a little bit more, uh, let's say, uh, boisterous about it because we can, there's just too many of these. And nobody can keep track of them anymore, so they sell them. Let's go to Paul in Texas. Paul. Booyah, Jim. Booyah, Paul. My stock is AGNC Investment Corporation. Yeah, mortgage-backed security company that has a big yield that does nothing. That's what it's had since I started the show. That's what it continues to be, and I don't want you in it. I think you should sell, sell, sell. John in Florida. John. Booyah, Kramer. Yo, what's up? Hey, I have a best-of-breed stock that has me in the house of pain. What do I do with my Weber? I don't know. Barbecue with it? I mean, the, the, I, I recommend this at Traeger. I mean, there's like five barbecue companies now. And I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm shocked that this, it's this low. It's a really, really good company, and it makes a lot of money, and it's very inexpensive. But it has no catalyst. Let's go to Jesus in Texas. Jesus. Woo, yes, Jesus Gonzalez, Austin, Texas, sir. It's an honor to be on your show. Oh, thank you for coming on the show. What's going on? Cleveland Kids. They make things, they get paid for it, and they make money. Buy, sell, or hold. Which which company, I'm sorry? 
Cleveland Cliff. Cleveland Cliff. Okay, I was going over this company with uh, Matt Horwey, my writing partner, and we're both shocked. It'll be this low. Obviously, the estimates are too high. Obviously, the people are going to say it has a high model because the number's too high. I still believe in the company. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Like it or not, the future belongs to young people. And that includes the future of the stock market. For example, this morning, I listened to American Express say that 60, 60% of new card owners are millennials. Bingo, the stock screams 14 points higher. Or take American Eagle. It's a stock we bought way too early for the charitable trust has now come down to the point where it yields more than 3%. But American Eagle owns a huge chunk of the Gen Z market, which is why Matt Boss, J.P. Morgan, the best retail analyst on Wall Street, could see it rallying 50% if you value it the way Kohl's is being valued on a takeover. We featured it on our morning meeting at 1020 for investing club members only, and the darn thing roared into bull mode. But you know what's really a shame, though? I've always told you to buy what you know. That doesn't necessarily mean that you should just buy something like American Eagle because you like their jeans. What I want you to do is say, hey, I like American Eagle's jeans. Now let me delve into the stock. Is it cheap? How was the quarter? How's that dividend? Do they have a problem with infrastructure? That's the right way to buy when you know. And that's what I try to teach in the CNBC Investing Club. Unfortunately, we've got tons of young investors who insist on buying what they don't know. I saw many millennials rush into the cruise line stocks, not considering that maybe they needed to raise money to stay afloat, which they did, diluting the heck out of every owner. I saw them buy Palantir in almost mystical fashion, betting that it was somehow the best cyber warfare stock, even though it isn't. Of course, they love the $10 backs, like you can only lose $10. It hurts to lose $10. And of course, a year ago this week, They piled into two companies, not because they liked the business. Oh, no, not at all, actually, but because they believed they could crush the short sellers. I'm talking about AMC and GameStop. Now, I'm never against making money as long as you aren't breaking the law. But I think it's a bad strategy to buy something that you either don't understand or don't care to understand. Sure, with AMC, everybody knows movie theaters, but you might not have known that CEO Adam Aaron was desperate to raise some capital the whole way up to keep the company alive. It otherwise wouldn't have been. And then he followed that up by selling much of his personal stock, more than $40 million worth, to make some money for his family. I thought that was fine, too. You see, because he was crystal clear that he was going to do it. He even gave you a head start to get out ahead of him. Did you listen to him? I think far too many younger investors who crowded into AMC, which is, of course, when he was selling, was much, much higher, believe something big was happening here, some kind of turnaround, maybe involving popcorn. Nothing could be further from the truth. The numbers for the box office this year are horrendous, down 55% from pre-pandemic. I mean, they're horrible. You had to get out while the getting was good. And he told you when that was by his stock sales. Why the emoji-headed monk didn't listen to him, I have no idea. But at least with AMC, I can imagine a future where they're doing well. GameStop, on the other hand, was always much harder to justify as an investment. It's a video game retailer in a world where people just download their games over the web. The whole bull thesis here was always tenuous, to put it lightly. The idea that an executive from Chewy, the digital pet food company, could come over to GameStop's board of directors and change 
everything. Well, that was never a good reason to own the stock. Sure, maybe they really are going into crypto and NFTs, but that feels more like a way to capitalize on a popular buzzword. If they've finished my whole plan, I think they actually could do well. But maybe what they really should do, and I've been thinking about this because I am a rigorous thinker, maybe they should have gone into dog toys that you can buy with Dogecoin. More important, do younger people even, like, go to a GameStop? I mean, really? I mean, if you've actually gone to the stores and seen how antiquated they are, well, you've already had a a rude awakening. I mean, it's like Guitar Hero. The people bidding this stock up simply knew that they could crack the shorts. And once the shorts were beaten, they stuck with the same playbook, even though it made no longer sense because there weren't any shorts in it. Right now, I'm seeing many younger investors get blown to smithereens because they don't know what they own. Many of them are proud that they smashed the short sellers in GameStop and AMC, but that was a year ago, for heaven's sake. And these hedge funds have moved on. Now, it's time to buy stocks of what you know. And if you truly knew GameStop and AMC, you pro- or like knew how to read a balance sheet with the latter, you probably wouldn't like them here at all. Unless making money doesn't matter anymore. In which case, you really are better off just watching football and betting on the game with one of a dozen apps Every bit as good as Robin Hood, if not better. We're all Caesars. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. Now. 